0: This sermon was preached at Redeemer Lutheran Church of Fallbrook, California on Sunday, January 27th, 2019. It was based on Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. Thanks for listening. While the nations rage against God's Son, the believers rally around him. The second reading is Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. And this reading serves as the basis for today's sermon. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The word of the Lord. The book of Acts which uh, is a, the basis for today's sermon, is the account of the, the origin of the New Testament Christian church. And in the three chapters that led up to the verses today from chapter 4, there's all this amazing, remarkable growth and success As the gospel rapidly spread from Jerusalem and then to Judea, and as we would see in the rest of the book, it continues to spread all in the ways that Jesus himself had promised it would. But when you get to the fourth chapter, there are now ominous clouds gathering on the horizon. Leading apostles were thrown in jail and interrogated. That's what happened in the very uh, preliminary to this reading today. That's why this reading started with the phrase, upon their release, their release from jail, from, from the, the slammer. And they were while they were there, they were interrogated. And the authorities threatened them and said, there's, there's more of this to come if you continue to go around preaching the good news in the name of Jesus. So this, this means these, these believers, these early believers, are now starting to face this growing machinery of, of political and religious authority that once conspired to crush Jesus, they're seeing it start to kind of spin up and gear up again to crush this upstart preaching of the gospel throughout the city and spreading even, even beyond it. This opposition was going to try to stop the preaching of, of what they were saying, that they were, they were saying nothing less than the defeat of death itself would come in Jesus' name. And this alarmed the authorities, and they wanted to put a stop to it. So as those early believers gathered around the word, the meal, and the prayers, they were facing the realization that if they kept going down this path, many of them would likely face death because of their faith. We know if you just turn a few chapters later to Acts chapter 7, we, we meet the first person who was indeed put to death for his faith. These believers, as they are gathering and they're, they're considering and they're praying in Acts chapter 4, they're among the, the very first in the New Testament church to wonder how, how you can follow Jesus when following Jesus is hard. But they were also among the first to discover the the path to follow Jesus, even when following Jesus is hard. And of course, we know they're not certainly the last. They're not the last to wonder how to follow Jesus when it's hard, nor, God willing, will they be the last to find a way to follow Jesus when following him is hard. See, anyone even remotely aware of the, the common Christian experience as has been lived out by believers across the centuries. Anyone who knows that also knows that, that following Jesus is, quite often, very hard, difficult. There are trials, difficulties of all kinds that come our way in this, this seemingly endless wave after wave that comes crashing onto the shore of our life. We live in a world full of human beings who themselves are corrupted by sin and, and the fear of death and this, this thinking that, that is tainted by sin and, and governed by this, this ominous end called death corrupts so much about the way, the way we live and the way we, we have our being. There's, there's sickness and suffering, disease and death. There's, there's sadness and shame, doubt and despair. There's conflict, cruelty contempt, there's loneliness, and there's loss. We could go on and on with the list and maybe never quite cover with neat and tidy nouns all the, all the words that would describe the experience that you have had or that I have had in this walk of faith that we share together. No believer goes for very long without discovering the high cost and the hard price of faith in Jesus. Just like those believers in Acts 4. They learned that as well. The apostles learned that as well. That's why we know from, from this account that later in his ministry when the apostle Peter wrote that trials are like a refining fire, we know... He was speaking from experience. he had been through these trials. He knew what it was like and he he compared these trials to a refiner 's fire that is meant to meant to purify or reveal the character of, of precious metal like like gold or, or silver and the The point of that kind of metaphor is is painfully obvious that the, the fire that is going to refine or reveal what's in us is, is actually going to be quite, quite hot. And the heat is going to bring to the surface and bring it to where you can see it. It's going to reveal the character of your faith. It's going to show where your weaknesses lie. And God willing also give you opportunity to rise above those and show the, the true strength of character that God can create in a believer. But often what's most troubling is that the first thing we see when that, when that heat turns up, as it would for a refiner, is that, that as that metal starts to bubble and boil, the impurities come to the surface first before they can be swept away or burned away. And what happens when heat of, of life, of trials, brings impurities to view in our own conduct and our own character, it, it, can, it can be a bit of a shock to us. Maybe we don't want to cope with it or address it, but yet that's what happens. The scripture says that's what will happen and that's what we see. And so my question for you today and for us to consider is, what, what is it that comes to the surface when the heat of trials comes your direction in life? when you are in that, that crucible and the heat is on? What comes to light in your life when following Jesus is hard? There could be many, many different things that you and I could share, but there's a few broad categories of what, what people often discover. Many people will discover that what's, what's been going on in their life as a Christian is that they've been living in, in a sort of second-hand kind of love for Jesus and his church. You know how secondhand smoke works. You don't actually have to be smoking to have the ill effects of those who are around you, right? But on the flip side, there's, there's almost this idea that you could have a secondhand zeal or enthusiasm for, the, for, for our Lord, for his body, and for his, for his people that isn't really, isn't really coming from your own heart, this can happen to you and to me. Someone like this, maybe they, they fed off the enthusiasm or the involvement of others and they, they found that they, would, they would, could rally around Christ and his church because they considered it a, a popular cause or a, 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 something worth fighting for. They kind of meshed with their personality and so they, they went along with it and the presence of big numbers or good friends or particularly strong and influential personalities kind of kept them within the community of believers they they weren't themselves plugged in the way others were but they got the second hand effects of it and so they kind of they kind of went along but then something happened maybe they moved from big church to little flock They saw their home go from full house to empty nest. A a prominent relative died or, or moved away. They went from one season of life to the next, and their enthusiasm for Christ, for his people, for his cause and his gospel began to fade for some reason. As the, as the people around them changed or their circumstances went from one time period of, of this life to another. And it faded because their enthusiasm and their zeal for Christ was not really their own. It was coming from someone else. They were, they were borrowing it from their surroundings. It wasn't flowing from their heart and through their heart. It was coming from someone else. See, the Bible talks about maturity as, as a goal for our faith. But there is no direct promise that physical maturity is always going to correspond exactly with spiritual maturity. We can find very young children who demonstrate far more spiritual maturity than someone that's, that's quite older. In fact, we, we find that sometimes the... the you know graying hair or the newly appearing wrinkles around your eyes are are actually signals of the onset of some of the most difficult trials for your faith that you that you may ever have it's often not until we start to reach middle age and cross through middle age that you might realize that for a big chunk of your life you've been re- you've been relying on the, not on the power of Christ himself. You've not been captivated by the, the love of Christ himself and the beauty of Christ himself, but you've been, you've been feeding off of the after effects of someone else's joy and love for Christ. You've been, you've been kind of going on with the momentum of doing Christian things with other Christian people. And for believers who, who start to discover this as, as the circumstances in life start to reveal this in them, it can be really startling. It can be even frightening. Like, what, what have I been up to? Have I been a, have I been a fraud? Have, have I been so dependent on others that I haven't even found this zeal and enthusiasm and joy in Christ myself? But if you, if you discover that is, is the case for you at times or you've maybe seen that in your past or you're concerned that this might happen in your future, and the answer is is not ever to simply find a way to replicate what you had before or find another maybe a group of people who can kind of give you the, the boost or maybe another cause that's going to finally be the one this time that if you if you join it then you'll have have this enthusiasm that you want. The answer is not to try to replicate what we had before, but to finally and fully rely on the power of Christ, to finally and fully tap into what it means to to have him as your true and greatest source of identity and peace and joy and purpose in a way that maybe maybe you or I have not fully tasted before. Maybe you yourself, by pursuing that, could become the kind of person that leads others to that. It's not as if that secondhand enthusiasm isn't part of God's plan to draw people in, but He's not trying to just keep you there in the in the hallway. He wants to bring you to the rooms where there are there is a hearth and there is there is true warmth. That's what to do if we start to discover that our our love for Christ is is has been sort of secondhand. Others, maybe they don't discover that they've had this secondhand love for Christ, or zeal for his mission. But what they discover when trials come their way, when the, when the heat is up and following Jesus is hard, they discover that their discipleship of Jesus has, over the years, been more self-serving than self-sacrificing. They, they had found that being a Christian brought certain benefits that they really enjoyed having. <laughs> You know, if you were if you were known as a churchgoer, you could find a lot of respect in the community or maybe at the workplace. If you if you put the the fish on your phone book ad, you might get a little extra boost of business, and that was good. You might find that if you joined up with the cause of Christ and his church, that you could get some resources for yourself or for your family, some some sort, of, some sort of benefit that would kind of boost you in a way that maybe you couldn't just get by, by going it alone. And as long as the goods and services that God was uh, purportedly offering to you were delivered on time and in the right quantity, you were be, you'd be willing to pay the, uh, the price that would match it in exchange for this flow of goods and services. But then, again, something, something happened. For the first time, identity as a Christian brought not respect, but scorn and derision and mockery. Your relationship with Christ came into conflict with relationships at work. Suddenly it was not useful to be identified as a Christian in the business world or in in a way to advance your career. And maybe you discovered that a, a truce with some family members seemed a lot more appealing and worthwhile than, than peace with God in Christ. Somehow and in some way, the cost of, of communion with, his Christ, with Christ and his church began to exceed the desired benefits. And so what folks often did is they would, they would thank God for past services rendered and return their unused portion for a full refund and move on to another spiritual economy that could deliver the goods at the price they wanted to pay because they were not serving themselves or they were not serving christ but they were serving themselves and so the deal wasn't worth it anymore so the bible's view of trials and temptations as this refining fire mean that god is going to at times ask something tremendously costly of you and of me And in that moment when he asks for that costly thing, you will discover really and truly whether you have been in relationship with him to serve yourself or to serve him. You won't be able to avoid the realization in that moment. And trials come our way to reveal that for us. Because if you and I have discovered, or we do discover, that you've had your relationship with God backwards for many years, the answer is not to find a way to sort of restore the old economy of things between you and God. That way was a sham. The only possible answer is to repent of such a selfish approach, to turn from it, and, and maybe start down the way of Jesus that, that you or I have had our own ways of trying to avoid for so long. See, genuine trials, when there's, when there's real opposition, real threat, real cost, these have a tendency to reveal in us the unpleasant difference between an artificial and authentic character of faith. Trials are a fire that first bring those impurities to the surface. They come bubbling up and they're gruesome and they're awful and we can't escape the fact that they came right out of our own heart and our own conduct and our own being. But the metaphor continues that not only is this meant to bring the trials or uh, bring the impurities to surface, but this heat, these trials, are meant to also burn those impurities away so they can be swept off the top so that only pure gold is left behind. And in Acts chapter 4, Peter and the other disciples and that early church, they discovered how these trials would bring this to the surface, but also how it could sweep them away, how it could repair them and do away with them and show their faith in in a new character, in a refined character. See, the same trials that bring impurities to the surface are the same trials that also drive us back again and again to the same truth, the same gospel, the same message that first captivated our attention and can still shape our conduct and our emotion and our will and our mind and our character. What we want to do today is to pay close attention to the the prayer those believers spoke as they first faced such stiff opposition. The, the, this prayer in Acts four teaches us so much about how to follow Jesus when following Jesus is hard. First of all, you'll see that their prayer was a was a liturgical prayer, meaning it was a it was a prayer structured and patterned around the words of scripture, <clears throat> the words of scripture itself. Such prayer is a as a deliberate pattern, and it doesn't come naturally to us in our in our moments of greatest need always. But it what it does is it. It flows from a shared tradition and pattern of of believers reading and digesting and taking to heart the words of God together in community. And so they've they've got things to say when they don't know what to say. They have truth to bring to bear when they don't know what truth is going to be right now. That kind of prayer brings God's word to bear on our circumstances and not that we bring our circumstances to bear on God. The true power is brought down to shape our view of our situation. The people, you see, they were afraid. They were afraid of what, what might become of them and their families if they continued to follow Jesus. There could be death. There could be loss. There could be all these things. They were coping with a shrinking sense of conviction as they were comparing their relative strength to the, the might of their enemies And they're wondering, how are we going to rise up in boldness to this challenge? How are we going to follow through our Lord's command to bring this gospel to all nations? I mean, they wouldn't have prayed for fearlessness and boldness if we weren't coping with fear and, and timidness. But they don't say. What they don't say is, God, I'm fearful. So, Zap me with a jolt of fearlessness. They don't say, God, I'm timid. Zap me with boldness. They don't say, God, I've got enemies. Move me to a place where there are no enemies. They don't say, God, I'm uncomfortable. Take away the circumstance that's making me uncomfortable. No, what they do is quite different. They come along and they they pray the scriptural record. They pray it back to God and they apply it to themselves and their own situation. They call God sovereign Lord. He, he rules and reigns in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. He's not the kind of God you save your receipts so you can, you can return him if he doesn't work out. He's sovereign, completely transcendent over us. Then they acknowledge God as creator as well. He's utterly beyond this universe, and yet he is the source of all that there is. He's not the kind of God you pick up when you feel like it and set aside when he bores you. He's, he's the source of all things. Then they cite God's past revelation. They quote the past scriptures. They, they say that this, this God is the God who is the one who has spoken by the Holy Spirit in the past to reveal his name and his purpose. He's the one against whom people have always risen up to plot against. And then they, they trusted God's present fulfillment. They found in Jesus the true anointed one, the the son of God in human flesh, the one who brings all the benefits of God's salvation to every human being who believes, the one against whom the nations have stood up, but the ones that that Jesus has defeated decisively by his death and resurrection. And when they prayed these scriptural truths back to God, when they brought them to bear on their circumstances, the ground underneath them was shaken. God reminded them in that moment that he still stands upon the earth as its ruler and its master, and that his plans and purposes shall be accomplished no matter the opposition that could come their way. You see, when you and I, when we walk on the ground, we don't really notice it shaking underfoot. But if you have seen Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you know that when you step and trot on the ground, if there's any little critters underfoot around you, they, they're shaken. Even, even larger animals, they can, they can feel and hear your footsteps coming and they run and scatter in different directions. You see, whether, whether your footfalls shake the earth, it's a matter of scale and perspective. You and I, we, when we land our feet on the ground, we don't make the earth's crust shake. But when God walks upon the earth, he most certainly does. And why else do you think it is that whenever God came down, whenever he wanted to, his people to know that he was there, they couldn't miss it because the earth would shake. The, the earth would rattle. The mountains would crumble and fall. He would bring such might and glory and power that when he came down, the earth, the whole earth would shake around them. When he appeared to the Israelites, what happened? The mountains trembled. When he appeared to the prophets, what happened? They would fall to the ground and they would feel as if they were being, they were being ripped apart at the seams. Every time God appeared, the earth shook and the people fell apart. But remarkably, each and every time, God's God's earthquake came when his presence was there. He, he never shook the people to death. He didn't shake his people to death. Not in the Old Testament, not in Acts 4 when the ground shook. Why? Because one weekend in Jerusalem, there were two earthquakes. First, when Jesus died, the Gospels tell us that, that the, the people standing there noticed that the whole earth was shaking. When Jesus died, the whole earth shook as the infinite wrath of God came crashing down on Jesus. But, but wrath, it's not some grotesque version of, of what we would do if we were mad or vengeful. You know, we, when we're wrathful, we have anger, but it's always tinged with some personal malice. We're going to get someone. But God's wrath is the inevitable and natural and holy consequence of a, of a holy God coming into contact with unholy people. And so we have to remember that the wrath that shook the earth as it landed on Jesus, as that whole wrath fell down on him, was wrath otherwise aimed at you and me. Wrath that was meant to land on me and to land on you. You and I are people of unclean lips. We are people who have caused and deserve God's wrath. In Jesus Christ, though, God stood willingly under the curse that we had caused so that the curse would no longer fall on us and would no longer control us. That was the first earthquake, and it saved us. But the second earthquake restored us. You see, the second earthquake is the one on Easter when the ground shook and the tomb opened and, and the, the very light footfall of the resurrected Jesus landing on the morning dew sent shockwaves throughout the whole universe as death itself cracked to pieces. For now a human being who had carried all the wages of sin now stood above the earth, stood above death, and had dispelled and destroyed its curse forever. Christ's victory is the the ultimate victory over ultimate opposition. And so it renders any intervening opposition utterly powerless. The logic of fear and death has no right to govern you and your will and your emotions and your conduct any longer. It simply has no right. That means time is not actually short. You are not actually alone. Resources are not actually limited. Someone really does love you, no matter what, and you are not actually mortal. You are baptized into Christ's death, which means you will stand defiantly with him above death's curse. You can look with the early believer's at Jesus and his crucifixion, and you can conclude as they did that if God could take such an unspeakable evil and such an awful thing and turn it into a a good so infinite that we, we can't even begin to grasp it after a whole lifetime, if he can do that with such circumstances, then surely he can work our trials into the gracious plan he's been fulfilling for you and for me day by day. The Holy Spirit that comforted those early believers in Acts chapter 4 is the same Holy Spirit who has ensured that you are here to read this story again today. The story of these believers and how God worked through them is good for us to remember. To remember that their way wasn't the fast way, it wasn't the easy way, it wasn't the convenient way, but it was the way worth following. For it was the way of Christ that leads decisively through death to sin, and then to resurrection, to life. And when that is our way, when that power is our power, when it is what captivates our heart and that joy is what, what defines us no matter the circumstance or our surroundings, then we discover that no matter how many trials come and shake God's people, what happens is this. God's people only and ever remain in him, unshakable. Amen.